This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That An absolute delight to be joined on Football CFB today by a man who played under the legendary Jim McLean. He also played for many years in the English Premier League, scored many goals, went to major tournaments with Scotland. How is a Scotland fan? We can only dream that we're going to a tournament again soon. And that man is Kevin Gallagher. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. It's a, uh, it's a welcome just to come and actually speak to someone about football back home again. And in, and in terms of football, before we talk about, about your career and, and the incredible memories from what you've achieved, I want to talk to you about your football academy and your soccer school, because I think that's something that is very important for so many youngsters. And when you've got someone like yourself who played at the highest level in the game, willing to give something back to kids, for me, I just think that's brilliant. Could you just explain a bit about how your academy works and how it runs on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, it came about by not being able to get a job uh, in England in an academy, uh, locally, shall I say. I won't mention a club. Uh, so I decided to to try it myself. Um, went into kind of grassroots side of the game and try it because there's no ex-international footballers really that I know of that, that doing what I'm doing. And you're going out into the community. Uh, you've got kids coming. Uh, of all sizes, of all ages, between I think seven and 16. Uh, I've got adults as well. And it's a very, very mixed thing. Uh, I've got kids who are beginning football, who are trying to get on the ladder of just learning the game. And then I've got the kids that, who are on the verge of academies, but they don't know why they can't pass trials. And then I've got kids that are actually in at academies, coming back for some extra stuff um, to help them progress as well. And we're speaking to them on a kind of mentoring role uh, to give them the the sort of the black and white of what it is like in an academy. And then I've, I've had one or two 18, 19 year olds, which are finding uh, very difficult leaving academies and the transition be- between uh, an academy under 16 team, under 17, trying to then get into the men's game as a young lad at 18. Uh, so we, we work with these guys and uh, it's been going well. And then we have our camps. So we have our camps for, for kids to come and enjoy. Uh, and I mean, I've been going now for, I think this is my eighth year, I think it is now, uh, we've been going. But obviously a few hiccups on the way with the the COVID virus uh, hitting a, a lot of the, the football side of things. But at the minute, fingers crossed, we, we can keep going. Absolutely, because I think, as, as you've said there, it's very important that, that kids, even if they're not quite at academy level yet, it's important that they get an opportunity to be mentored and to continue playing the game because you know this yourself from, from players that you've played with. Sometimes you can get someone who blossoms later than others and, and if they stop playing at, say, 
13 or 14 because they've had a couple of trials and they didn't get in, it'd be a shame for their talent to go to waste because sometimes you have a growth spot or whatever it may be that's required to, to get you into that academy and to flourish at the professional level. Oh, definitely. No, I mean, you're not talking to the tallest footballer in the world, you know, at five foot eight, and you kind of think to yourself, you're always looked upon as being too small. And that's the way look people looked upon me. Uh, you're too small for the game. I think when I was like 13, 14, I, was, I, I must have been paperweight. I was very small. And, you know, it took a, a bit of bravery from people like Jim McLean to, to come and say, look, your, your size doesn't matter. It's your ability. And that was, that's what gave me and sold me the opportunity. And, and for today's football, kids don't get told that. Kids get shown the silver spoon and they don't see the reality of it all. And, and that's the harsh side of it, you know, and, and they get bought into it and parents get sold a certain thing and you get your kids into these academies and then that kid becomes a number. And becoming that number, you think a lot of kids think they've made it and there's a big downfall from that. And that's the downside because at academies, the, the coaches, unfortunately, don't have the time to do what I actually do because they've got so much computer work, paperwork to fill in after a coaching session. So at least with myself, I can be honest with the parent, I can be honest with a child, and you can say things to them that possibly you shouldn't say, and you would not say at an academy. And, and I think that's refreshing, honestly, because in terms of life, whether it be people that work in education, the police service, or whatever it may be, Paperwork and that element of things, that sort of paper trail of evidence is is, is creeping in more and more. And, and I think with football, you're right there in what you say. I think sometimes an honest conversation and really setting things out as they are is the best thing you can hear as a footballer um, or any sort of young sports person, male or female, in the sense that if you're going down this route of thinking you're good enough because nobody's told you that you're maybe not progressing where how how quickly you want to be or the position that you've been played in isn't really a position that long term might work for you I think there is definitely something to be said for the development of young players being told what their strengths are what their areas for development are in no uncertain terms so that they they can improve without having any guesswork at all yeah no I mean I, I know academies do it now you know I, I know they video these guys games and they show them it and uh, they basically try and talk them through it in, in some manner. But in my day, it was black and white. In my day, you got told you played well, done well done, son. And then on the other hand, you got told, no, that was a very, very bad day. Uh, you didn't play well. You're going to have to buck up your ideas. You can't say that to the kids now, you know, and it's and it's a strange times in the games for the youngsters, you know, and, and, and it, they find it difficult to be able to handle that and, and be, be able to handle that rejection. And it's, we had, to, at least we had, you knew you, you, you had to take the rejection because you had to then work hard to get back into the game. If people are sitting on the fence all the time telling you, oh, you're doing really well. Or, yeah, you know, you're doing not too bad. You don't know where you're coming or going. You just believe that you're doing well all the time. But then in the back of your head, you're thinking, well, why am I not doing this? And why can't I do that? And I think it plays around a lot with, with kids' heads at times. And, uh, and it's in a, a a new generation of, of times when players and the, the mental capacity is, is, is uh, people are struggling. Another aspect of, of your life after um, professional football I want to ask you about is your involvement with football aid and with David Dale and his team because those events that allow fans to play on the hallowed turf 
of their of their favoured team is, is is are incredible. They're events that people talk about for many years. We hear the fan side of those stories quite a lot, but as the, the former professional, what's it like for you when you're playing in those games with the, with the fans who are cheering you on in the terraces and maybe giving you a bit of stick at times in your career as well? I can see where this is leading now. Yeah, no, it is. No, it's brilliant. It's unbelievable. When uh, Craig and David uh, they came in and approached me years ago at Blackburn Rovers and to help and do something and get some players at Blackburn Rovers, uh, I, I jumped at the chance, the opportunity, you know, as I was still a fit, retired footballer, but I thought, well, it'd be nice to go and give something back to the fans and, and go and do it. And it was, I mean, the, the people, the friendships over the years that I've made with people, uh, with fans and and the fans I've made with each other has just been phenomenal. It's been a great connection to them all. Uh, but for me, it was it was brilliant. And, and I just seen it as an opportunity of, playing the managing you can have a go back at these guys without any remorse really and I remember I think it was one of the games a few years ago and thought I'm going to have a laugh with the two centre half or two centre forwards and the centre half like because they were just booming it honestly and the boys in midfield were running about everywhere couldn't get on the ball and I just went in at half time and I absolutely annihilated the two central defenders and I realised after I thought maybe I shouldn't have done it as harshly but uh, I think David reminded me uh, quite a lot about that story about going in and lambasting my players at half time or just long balling it and not trying to play football. <laughs> it's one of those things where it, it's like any sort of charity match or testimonial where sometimes people think, as you've said there, people are happy to turn up and play, but being a former professional, there's always that competitive edge and that never goes away. Oh, it never leaves you. I mean, my family, my daughters, I mean, I, we were playing a game last night and I was raging because I wasn't winning and my youngest daughter was winding me up. Like She's like, what's the score, Dad? One for me, one for Mum. And I'm like, yeah, okay, right, okay. So it just absolutely hammer me because they know that it just winds me up if I'm not in that winning streak. And I just carried it through my life. And I think that's, at times it gets you where you want to get to. Sometimes it can be a hindrance, but it's how you handle it. And, you know, and it's, they proved last night when I was playing the game with them. I just basically brushed it off and I won the next game and just before we went to bed. So I always say you're only as good as your last game and that was it. They they never spoke to me all night. <laughs> Some things never change. And in terms of Scotland, I want to talk to you first of all about your Scotland career because it's very topical at the moment. The country are trying to qualify for Euro 2020 or Euro 21, whatever way you want to say it. Um, one game away now. But you played at three major tournaments for Scotland. What was it like in that era of the Scotland national team when you were playing? Because, I mean, I'm, I'm 24, so for me, the last tournament we got to, I was three, so I don't have any real memories of being able to watch it. Obviously, I've watched the footage back, but for me, imagining Scotland playing at a major tournament is sadly something that's hard for me to imagine because I've only watched it in archive footage. But for you, what was it like, first of all, playing for your country? And secondly, what was it like going to international tournaments? You know, playing for my country is what I wanted to do as a kid. I played in the back garden uh, as a very young kid, dodging clotheslines and washing poles and hitting my head off the rope and getting filled by poles and things like that. And it was Scotland versus Brazil. That was my final. It always seemed to be my final, Scotland versus Brazil. And for me, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to play Brazil in the World Cup final because that was what 
in my era as a kid growing up, that's what you had to do. I wanted to play for my country, which was Scotland. And I wanted to play in a World Cup final, which was going to be, Brazil always seemed to make it. They always seemed to beat England in the semi-final as well, which was a bit of a, we never even, never seemed to get a Scotland-England final. So for me, it was, that was my dream and what I wanted to do. And I was fortunate enough to, to represent my country uh, and at a time that with unbelievable talent, Ali McCoy, Mo Johnson, Alan McAnally, Gordon Strachan, Robert Fleck. Oh, I can go through names that I was alongside trying to, to get into the, the national team. And it was just, it was just an honour to be there. Uh, sometimes I, I just didn't want to play because I just wanted to sit and admire people like Gordon Strachan and just sit and watch how he played and how he played that right wing differently, how Morris Johnson and, and Koiste played together up front. And you think, wow. And you pinch yourself sometimes and you think, I'm backing these guys up, you know, and, and it was brilliant uh, for me to have such a long career, 13 years, and eventually, you know, the 90 World Cup came upon us and I thought I'd a great chance of getting to the 90 World Cup. Everything was going well for me. I got a move to Coventry and everything. I started playing regularly after Christmas. I was doing really well and I got left out of that squad and I was absolutely gutted. I was mortified, really, to be fair. Uh, went away on holiday as a standby player in case someone got injured and never quite got there. Morris Johnson was the one that got injured. But I thought, it's Morris, there's no chance I'm going to get to the World Cup because there's no way Morris will miss it with the slightest of injury. He'll be fit. So I was disappointed I never got to that. But then, you know, a few years later, you get to the 92 uh, Euros. And from then, I just thought, this is a big part for me now. I'm, I'm backing these guys up. I'm, I'm on the short tails. I, I need to take their, I need their position. I need to do better. And I'm watching what they do. I'm, I'm working at Dundee United. I'm working at Coventry City. He's thinking, right, what am I going to do? I need to better it. And I just kept backing the players up. It was hard because these guys are only between four and eight years older than you and they're fantastic footballers. So I was happy to be in the squads. I was happy to travel around the world backing the guys up waiting for my opportunity and you know and unfortunately we get to you know a broken leg stage and it looks like my career could have been finished and it was disappointing I thought god that I got back I got back in time when Blackburn won the Premier League I managed to to put a whole game in or three quarters of a game in score a goal and then break my leg again and coming back from a second broken leg I ruptured my hamstring so it was setting me back but then I managed to get myself 100% fully fit and uh, get myself ready because the next challenge was to get back into the Scotland squad or, or even get back playing regularly. And that was the second chance and I did it. Um, and Scotland were on their way to, to Euro 96 and it was a bonus for me because where Scotland were going to be based, it was where I used to live. Uh, so it was a massive bonus when I got included in the squad in 96. I still believe it was too early for me to be in that squad, but I got in there and it gave me that belief to that I was actually getting back to full fitness and the managers were believing in me. And I went to, to Euro 96 and uh, thoroughly enjoyed that. You know, yes, I didn't play in all the games, but I'd done well to even get the first game in. Uh, that would have done, I mean, one game done me. I was just happy that proved that I could get back to a top-class level of football. And then 
it was a case of now I need to to better myself for the players that are already in my position. And the next campaign was the World Cup at 98. And we started the season and I wasn't even first choice striker at the time. Uh, I think I was probably down about third or fourth, uh, if I'm going to be honest. And I just sat and watched John McGinley, Duncan Shearer, getting the opportunities, uh, Gordon Jury, getting in there, Darren Jackson. And I'm thinking, will I get an opportunity? And got that opportunity and scored a goal, carried on, scored six goals, got us to the World Cup in 98. And it was against all odds. Uh, we were getting so much stick. It was Dad's army. Where a lot of players were in their 30s. This was our last swan song. We knew it. And everybody gave it their best shot. And we we got there on, on merit. And it proves how good we were. And, and the age is just a number. And we went out and done the best we could and, and got to that World Cup, which a lot of people had written us off about. And in terms of that era of Scotland, what was it like working with Craig Brown? Because amazingly, he's still the last Scotland manager to take us to a major finals. You look back in that era, and at the time, a lot of people in the media could criticise Craig in Scotland at times for, for being a team that, that could be quite defensive. But when you look back now in, in 2020 and you think, well, 22 years since we've got to a major finals, we'd take that style of football and we would take those results all over again if we could get back there. Well, a lot of teams are buying into Craig's philosophy of the 90s of three and five at the back. Um, and, and they're starting it all over again now over in 2020. Uh, it's kind of it's weird how it all goes in circles. Uh, but Craig, he, he turned us into a a club side. The national team was a club side uh, and that's how we done it and I think that's how he got the success really. Um, he had a bunch of lads probably, I would probably say about 16 of us that were going to be in the squads no matter what and then he probably had a squad of 10 people, maybe more, 10 plus people uh, more that would get in and out the squads um, and that's the way that Craig worked it and I think that worked really well. And we haven't worked with them at the 21s and growing up with it, I kind of knew after Andy Roxford left and Craig took over, there's a big opportunity in there uh, and, and the opportunity arisen. But it was a club atmosphere that they had. They had players from different clubs all believing in each other and all want to work for each other and want to play for each other. And, and I think that's what it was, we all aged together, we knew together, we knew what we were like, we knew the quiet ones, we knew the noisy ones, we knew the, the characters, but we all got on and we all mixed together and I think that's what Craig's seen and basically that's how we got on it and as I said, we, we were together a long time, we understood how each other played and, and Craig believed that he had three strong centre-backs, three strong centre-midfielders, a couple of good top-quality top quality goalkeepers and he was going to build the, the ethos on that. And then he was looking for strikers that worked hard, with pace, to get in behind teams, that, that done unselfish running. And fortunately for myself, Gordon Jury, uh, Darren Jackson, were all part of that. Uh, people again to it. You know, your younger players like Simon Donnelly coming through as well, that would all do that type of work uh, and graft for the team. It wasn't about individualism and, and you taking the glory. It was, as I always say, Scotland won on merit by team effort and not by individualism. 
I think if we had any individuals that were quickly dissolved out the squad or, or pushed to the side a little bit to see if they would work harder. And, and that was what Craig's beliefs were. And, and it worked for him. And people kind of it shrugged their shoulders because it was, I must admit, sometimes it wasn't uh, nice to watch. But we were playing against top quality nations. Um, and we were, we were going out and getting, we were beating them. And I think when we went to the World Cup 98, we were one of the best uh, teams for goals against. So we weren't letting many goals against. We never let many set pieces in. And, and that was a big thing. And it was a big thing. You start a game now, now, and if you can, they don't concede, there's an opportunity you might win. And, and that was our philosophy on it. And we played that system really well. Three major tournaments, over 50 caps for your country, memorable international goals, a double against Austria always comes to mind when, when people talk about your time with, with Scotland. What are your personal favourites when it comes to your memories from playing for the country? Oh, everything. You know, I mean, I loved it. You know, from sitting in my back garden, man, man Cathy's back garden after the Scottish Cup final and sitting in the sunshine with the man of the match, but a runners-up medal and feeling pretty down uh, and getting a phone call, getting called up to a squad. Uh, players are called off. And you've, been, you've got Colombia and England. Uh, you've been called into the squad from that day. Uh, it's all memorable, you know, everything. All part of it, you know, the ups, the downs, the sideways things that happened uh, are, are memorable. And, and that's the thing, when I look back in the career, getting called in playing against Colombia. And you're just thinking, wow, you're looking along these guys, Carlos Valderrama, you know, and this guy's hair was five times the size of my head. And it was unbelievable. He's talented footballers, you know, Freddie Rincon, up and coming player. And, and you're thinking, wow, these guys all play in Europe and top international footballers. And I'm getting an opportunity with a national team to go along to it. And, you just think, this is it. My, my, my dreams is starting to happen. And then eventually, and, but I touched on it earlier, and you're looking at it. And I think one of the biggest things was sitting at the 98 World Cup draw at Christmas. And it came out, Scotland versus Brazil. I was a kid in the back garden. It was happening for me. I chased the dream, and the dream happened. So... The only difference was it wasn't a World Cup final. It was a World Cup finals. So that was a disappointing thing. That's the thing, as you know. The, the thing, when you're when you're born in Scotland, we all have these dreams of, of World Cup finals and maybe one day we'll get that moment. But you, to play Brazil, as you say, at any level, whether it's the finals or a final, is, is incredible. And I, I interviewed Craig Brown and I said to him, were you nervous going into that game? Was there any trepidation at all? And Craig, you know what he's like, just simply said, absolutely not. We had nothing to fear and I made sure the boys knew that. No, he's right. You're right. I mean, that was that was the philosophy that Craig put into us. You know, you, we had it at your football clubs and you had that belief anyway. But, you know, when you're stepping up into, into international football, it's a different level altogether. You know, and I think a lot of people notice it from the Champions League to international games as well. It's you're playing against the top players in the country, and it's 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 difficult. And you got to have that belief. You've got to, you can't have a negative belief. That's you no know I mean it's it's no good. You have to have that one. And whether you're playing at Brazil, who who were world champions four years earlier, 
and you're playing against the world champions and you're thinking, wow, we're playing the world champions here. We could have sat back and just wallowed in pain and pity. But we thought, no, it's 11 versus 11. We can go out against this. Colin Hendry was like, I want I want Ronaldo in my pocket, Tom Boyd, you know, Colin Calderwood. That, that's the way they're looking at it. They're wanting these things. And it's, it's unbelievable, you know, and I want to go there. I want to outrun, you know what I mean? I want to outrun Roberto Carlos. I want to run the two centre-halves into the ground. And you just want to do that because, you know, you, you hear so much about them because they are world champions. You want to see how good they actually are. We knew how good they were, but we gave it as good a shot as we could do. And unfortunately, we were on the, the wrong side of it. And I just think sometimes the luck just never happened for us. But there was other aspects of warm-ups and things like that before the event and things that, that took place because we had to warm up in a room. It was concrete floor. We're running about with trainers on. You were running into each other. You couldn't do any sprint work. I just wish most of us could dance like the Brazilians because we'd have probably warmed up better. <laughs> oh, tremendous. And in terms of your, your club career, I want to start, obviously, by asking you about Dundee United and, and, and Jim McLean because... There's also an upcoming film coming out about Sir Matt Busby, Jock Steen, Bill Shankly, and obviously those guys are legends. Sir Alex Ferguson's a legend as well. But I personally feel that a lot of the younger generation don't appreciate the genius of Jim McLean. I know obviously people say, oh, he's temporary, he's passion, etc. But when you look at what he achieved in his career at Dundee United, an absolute genius of a football manager. Oh, he was. Oh, way ahead of his time. Way, way ahead of his time. And... You know, it's it's just a shame that he, he didn't move to Rangers when he had the opportunity as well, you know, because I think he'd have took Rangers on to another level at that time. But he wanted he was Dundee United through and through. He he just he just wanted to do it with Dundee United. Um but in my day of growing up, yes, it was iron rod, it was it was a hard life. You you couldn't sit in your morals, you couldn't <laughs> You couldn't celebrate a hat trick without getting pinned up against the wall, getting told that you're a greedy little bugger. Um, and if you pass the ball a bit more, we'd have scored more. Um, that was a passion of the man and the drive of him. And it was always testing your character. And if you had a soft character, you wouldn't have handled Jim McLean. You wouldn't have been in the team. And, and that was a, the thing. He helped a lot of players there. And those players helped the younger players come through. You know, I was lucky. I had Goff, Higgett and Airy. Malpass, McAlpine, Billy Thompson, Billy Starr, Billy Kirkwood, Billy Dodds, Paul Starrett, you name all, I could just name all these guys, older players that were in the team, you know, John Clark, Ralph Millen, and, and these guys helped you. And, you know, they didn't look at you and go, you're coming in to take my place. It was a case of, come in, come in, welcome in. you got a job to take my place. And they made it difficult. And that's the conveyor belt of Dundee United. We had a lot of players like that. And it's how I learned to grow up is, yes, you can look forward and try and get into that first team, but don't forget to look over your shoulder because there's an abundance of talent behind you. And and we did. And I had people... I was 22, I left Dundee United. I had Christian Daly, Duncan Ferguson, Billy McKinley's, John O'Neill's. I had guys like that all champing it a bit, Michael O'Neill and, and Darren Jackson had both come to the club. So I had guys like that and that was Dundee United for you. They got players, they made you better, 
and they moved you on at certain areas. Some they want, some they wanted, they wanted them to stay. But generally, I think I was like one of the first ones to start leaving from that generation. Uh, there was rebuilding all the time happening, and and that's what it was. And fortunately for me, I got married in the summer, and by the January, I was getting moved on. So I take it as a a wedding gift from from Wee Jim. Uh, they sold me to Coventry. <laughs> and in terms of Dundee United at that time, you, you look at the success that the club had in Europe under Jim McLean, you play a big part in that as well. Everyone talks about the Dundee United record against Barcelona. It's extraordinary when, when you look at it on paper. What what do you think it was that, that made Jim and, and your Dundee United so successful in Europe? Because sadly, due to finances and football, you look at that story and it's only, what, 30 or so years ago, 40 years ago, and you think, it's just sad to think it would be very, very difficult for that to ever happen again for a club like Dundee United. We'd no fear. That was the thing. Uh, we drew Barcelona in the quarterfinals and the team top was the exact same as it was against St Mirren, was against Hamilton, was against Celtic or Rangers. The team top was the same. Uh, the, the scouting network done their homework in Barcelona and it got reported back to us. And we had to go out and do our job and minimalise what qualities that Barcelona had and play on their weaknesses. And that's why, for me, Jim McLean and, and the staff, Walter Smith and John Wallace and Stevie Murray scouting and all that, all these guys were worth their weight in gold for what they did at Dundee United back then. And when we played Barcelona, we knew about Barcelona. It wasn't like we played Barcelona and it was a big surprise. We knew about them and we had to get in about the channels because that's where they were weak between the centre-halves. And we did that. You know, first game, we played against them. Okay, I get I get the goal. It sets us in a 1-0 first leg. But we knew we had to go to Barcelona. We knew it was going to be difficult. But we also knew our scouting network were brilliant. And they were saying that Barcelona were struggling in Spain. They were telling us that if we can have, keep it compact and tight and, and play our game and forget about their game, it, it'll be worries. But, I mean, Barcelona preparations were unbelievable. They left the the grass the night before when we trained on it. It was long. It was very dry. And on the night of the game, it was short. It was wet. And it was sleek. And little did Barcelona know that suited us better. Because that's the way we played football. And the way that Jim McLean's tactics worked for us was, yeah, we started off as a 4-4-2. But within a roar for we Jim, we could go to 4-3-3. Within another roar, we could be a 4-5-1. And then within another one, we could be back to that 4-4-2 with different players in different positions. Because that's the type of team we were. We had players, Paul Sturrock, who could play as a centre-forward, who play as a number 10, who play as a winger. You people like David Dodge held the ball up. Ian Ferguson, another one striker, out-and-out striker, out-and-out goalscorer to play in the right wing, get out there and do a job, mix with part of lining. So, I mean, we guys that, that interchanged and were magnificent in the way that every team that we Jim had. And when you got leadership of, of Hegarty and Neri at the back, you just, you knew there was, there was good things there. There was confidence built throughout the side. And 
it was just building us young guys with that confidence and it was it was really good and we did we bounced off that and uh, as I said it's the game was a test of character when Calderon scored at Barcelona we were wow oh my god this is it they're going to be coming at us so we knew this is it it's going to suit us now because they're going to come out at us and they did and they paid the price for it um, they attacked us we got a free kick Big Clark, he gets a great header. And that was it. There was no holding us back from that moment. We regrouped and we knew our tactic. And we went again. And with wee Luggy, he was brilliant. You know, as I said, centre forward, gets on the ball, goes for a dribble, gets it, gets it in. And as I said, it, Fergie then gets a diving header. And you think, wow, we've gone all the way to Barcelona and we'll beat them on the soil. And you think, this is unrecognisable for a small football club in Scotland or a smaller football club in Scotland to do things like this but it wasn't for Dundee United because they'd done it before and we were just the next generation doing it again and you know if it ever happens again hopefully the next generation can do it again and keep that run going and in terms of that era Jim McLean the, the successes in Europe getting to the UEFA Cup final getting to the Scottish Cup final you score a goal, but obviously in the end, you, you just miss out to Celtic. How do you reflect overall on your time at Dundee United? Because you were playing regularly week in, week out. You mentioned the likes of Neri, Sturrock, so many other top talents that you played alongside with Jim as a manager. Did you go into every single game with the confidence that you could you could hurt the opposition because of the teammates you had and the managers backing as well? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, when I went as a 16-year-old to Dundee United, it was like the first heartbreak, really, because it was then I was because I was a centre midfielder or, or a number 10 in today's game, as, as most people will recognise the position. And that's where I played. I scored a lot of goals at junior level, uh, dropped back into midfield and created a lot of chances for people. Um, so when I went up to Dundee United as a 16-year-old a kid, Basically, between 16 and 17, I never kicked a ball. I trained every day, but I had no carrot. So I just got hungrier and hungrier because I wanted to, to prove that I was big and strong enough to, to play. And I think they were just waiting for me to grow. And as I said, when I got to that kind of age, it, was, it wasn't happening. I wasn't growing. Uh, but I was just going to be one of us. It's, you take the... We, Jim, had to obviously take the take it on the chin and think, right, we'll have to try this kid and put me in the reserves when I was 17. And I never looked back and I had a year in the reserves. And unfortunately, we got injuries going into a, a European campaign and Ralph Mullen got injured and, and that's what led to my debut. And by getting that debut, I just got stronger and stronger because my self-belief and the belief I was getting for the players that I was good enough to join this squad of players was phenomenal. And as I said, it just carried on from then. And for me, Hegarty Neri, Malpass, Goff, I mean, when you're playing with these guys, Scottish Internationals, Bannons, Sturrocks, Dodds, you just, it just rolls off your tongue. These guys, seasoned pros, they understood the game. And, and playing alongside them helped my knowledge of the game grow faster to whatever knowledge I had. And I think... That's the way it is. And yes, you take a lot of knocks. Yes, there was a lot of arguments with the manager. Yes, there was fallouts. But you still played on the Saturday and you still done the job for them. And, you know, and 
that's what happened. That's just the way it was uh, for for the football club and for me. Just growing up on that, I had that belief that I could beat anybody. You know, I made my debut, my league debut against Glasgow Rangers at Ibrox and we beat them. Now, to do that at Ibrox and beat Rangers in those days was, wow, a tough order. I knew I was going to be a bunch of guys that only a matter of two or three years earlier had won this league in Scotland. So they were good players. They were top quality players. And to get that backing from them and get the education from them as well was, was phenomenal for me. And I just took it on board and everything I could grasp. And my dad would tell me, my uncle Tommy would tell me from football days, going back from their football days, from my granddad. And basically just, it was a belief, you, ha- you have to believe in yourself first and foremost, and believe that you're good enough, strong enough, and can carry it. And that's what I done. And the story I'll always carry with me was about a weeble. And you're a bit too young to understand about weebles. I don't know if you've heard of them. And they're yeah. little, to- little round toys, a uh, round head and a round body. You knock it over and it gets back up again. And my dad just said to me, you know, when you're going to play professionally, you're going to have to become a weeble. And I thought, what? A little toy, a little fat round toy. And he went, no, 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 son. No, no, no. If you get knocked over by the big lads, which they will do, you're going to have to get back up and show them that you're not hurt. And I took that, and I've took that with me all the time. And I'm now tell that to the kids that I coach. I tell them the exact same story. And yes, they don't know about Rebels, but I get their parents to Google it. They can Google it now, and it's all there. This little weeble toy, and that's the story. And I take that with me because that's the way I played. I got kicked, I got pushed, I got shoved. I bounced back up, I frustrated people. And I found a a niche to get in and become a pest and annoy them. And that helped me become a stronger footballer. You mentioned the fact it helps you become a stronger player. You get the wedding present from, from Jim and the move to Coventry. Why Coventry in the end? And also, you played in the wing a lot at Dundee United. When you go to, to Coventry, you become more of an out-and-out striker. Was that hard to adapt to? Well, I suppose not, because you were top scorer in two seasons. No, it wasn't. You know, as I said, I, as a kid, I was a number 10. I, I was a, In my granddad's terms, in the, 19, in the 1900s, I was an inside forward, really. That's the way that I played. I like to play almost a free spirit across between midfield and forwards. I could track back, I could work hard and I just enjoyed it. And at my boys clubs, I was top goal scorer every season. Uh, I was way ahead of the, the centre forwards as well. So that was just me. I could, a little guy, very wiry, very lightweight, but I could score goals from 20 yards, 30 yards, four yards, one yard. I could score the goals for anywhere. And, I even scored a goal over a halfway line, which I didn't think I could reach when I was younger, but there's the smallest goalkeeper in the world, but I didn't want to tell you that. But anyway, but, you know, that's just it. And it was just the fact is when I went to United to become a pro, it was wee Jim, really, that said to me, look, watch Graham Payne, watch Ralph Millen, watch uh, Paul Sturrock. They three players I need you to watch and learn from because that's how you're going to play at this football club. So basically, that's how I watched. I watched Ralph Millen week in, week out. Graham Payne had just left, was just leaving the club. Watched how they played. Watched how they trained. 
and basically I had to emulate that. So I had to be between Sturrock and, and Millen. That was my type. I wasn't going to be a, a David Dodds, a tall target man. Uh, so for me to watch Sturrock and, and Millen was unbelievable, two top quality players. And, and that was it. And then I had to add my style to that and then take the opportunity. And when that opportunity arose, as I said, against Rangers, I used all my knowledge of, of that year of learning put in together with the games that I started playing and, and done it because that, that's all I could do is give it my best shot and my best shot was good enough for to stay in the team for the future. You go down there, as I say, you adapt, you scored goals down there in the old first division, which then comes into being in the Premier League in 92, as we all know. Just what was it like playing in English football and when the interest was coming in from other clubs, how did you react to it at the time? Because when there's interest in you, at any time, I imagine it's very flattering and, and you have to deal with it. But that was at the dawn of the Premier League, which was such a new era in football. It was, it was really weird because I kind of, as I said, like I fell out with wee Jim. But then in the summer I got married, I was back in the team again. And I kind of still wasn't seeing eye to eye with the manager. Then he told, told me just after Christmas, Coventry have come in. We've accepted the bid. Go and speak to them. And in those days, go and speak to them. Basically went, you're sold. It's as simple as that. I want the money. You need to go. And he wasn't going to let me go to Celtic, which I was holding on for. He wasn't letting me go there. Uh, so I decided, well, I can go down. Because I, I was playing under a cloud of the grandson of the legendary Patsy and I just thought it's time to become Kevin Gallick and, and make my own headlines I'd become an international player uh, and I thought yeah let's try it let's go to England and try it because not many has gone down and, and been successful let's go and do it um, and I thought right and I went down to Coventry and basically it's a great club you know they'd won the cup in 87 we were getting beat. They won the cup in '87, which was and still get still hurts me to the day when I, I go with '87 guys at Cov and you have a reunion, and they are talking about '87 winning the, the cup, and I'm just like guys, look, have a wee bit of uh, a noosh because I got beat at '87 in the cup final in Scotland, so uh, it's a little bit sore to take at times. But they're enjoying themselves and they took it with good spirit and and they welcomed me to the team, and that was a good side. The hardest thing was the language barrier. Uh, I thought moving to England, we all speak English. It would be a doddle. But being really, at the time, I was very, very broad. And even to the day, we and Durant always gave me stick about my accent turning English. But I had to change my accent because to speak a broad Scottish accent, nobody at Covent really understood. So I wouldn't have made any friends and I probably would have been a nightmare. And there was a lot of Scottish people living down there. So I had to kind of change the way that I spoke and I did that to make friends, got a lot of friends at the football club and they said they welcomed me up my arms. But John Sillett had bought me as a right winger. But Kevin Drinkle keeps telling me he actually did not recommend me to John Sillett. He didn't want me down at Coventry. Drinks wanted someone like a John Calhoun, a natural winger who would create more chances for Kevin. And Kevin kept telling John Sillett, Kevin Gallagher's a centre-forward. He's, he's not a winger. 
he can play in the wing, but he's not a winger. But John Sullivan says, oh, he's the best winger I've seen. And basically, that's what they brought me as. So when I signed for them, he said to me, I want you to play in the wing. You're going to be my winger. You're going to create chances and you, you can score chances when you get them. And that was it. So I went down and I had the chat. I met up with them. They sold me the football club. It was just down, down to personal details and managed to get the right personal details for me to move from Scotland to England. And I went down and, and that was it. I'd, within a matter of five hours, I'd, I'd basically moved. Um, John Sillett sent me back up the road for a week because the lads had a week off. So uh, again, I had to phone Jim, wee Jim, and just let him know that uh, I was coming back up the road and could I still train with the guys for a week, say my farewells to the boys, get my gear together, sort my house, <laughs> explain to the wife that we were moving, she's going to have to give notice, and we're moving down south. And, and that was it, you know. And so I spent a week back up in Scotland with the lads, training with them, they wished me all the best. And Jimmy McAnally and uh, David Bowman pulled me aside because they'd been at Coventry. And they, they basically gave me the warning. They said, Kevin, watch out for this, look out for that. These guys are good. These guys are not so good. Um, but you'll do it and, and, and go for it, pal. And, and that was it. And by the end of the week, everybody wished me all the best, said my farewells to all the guys. And that was it. I was down back down in Coventry and, and down in England with a new challenge and playing in the right wing. And first, I think the first five games were against two England internationals, uh, a former Scottish fullback, and one of the hardest players in the English league at the time. And you think, oh my God, every week was different. Every week was a different challenge. But every week was a very, very difficult week. And I, and I loved it. I loved it. I know it was very, very difficult. I loved it. And I thought, wow, I've got the challenge now. Yeah, people knew I was Kevin Gallagher as a Scottish international. But they were like, who? And that hurt me because I thought, I'm an international football player. You've got to know who I am. And they're like, who are you? And I thought, okay, there's my challenge. I'm going to make sure that people down in England know who Kevin Gallagher is. And it was that challenge. And Celtic kept coming to me and for about four, five, six seasons. Are you coming back up the road? We want you back up the road. And I went, no, I've got this challenge down here and I need to fulfil it. And fortunately, things came at the right time. Things came at the wrong time and you have your ups and downs. But at Coventry, I was there for three years, top goal scorer. Um, and absolutely loved it. The people were brilliant, but the club was changing. The club had no money uh, the time I was there. And I was the only one that was going to bring them in a couple of million pounds. And that's what happened. They, they, they spent, I think it was 2.1 million they'd spent on me. But then they bought Roy Wegley for a million. Um, and basically that, that was it. So I thought, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm going to Blackburn. And that was it. And... Uh, it was a different era, but for me, the introduction to English football with Coventry was a big eye-opener in many, many aspects. And it's hard because you have no family. Uh, we had no children at the time, so it was just me and the wife. And we were starting a new life, and it was really weird. Um, and then when we settled in, it, it was within probably six months it took me to settle. And that next, that 
first full season that I got, I never looked back because I'd settled in. A new environment, new place. The guys had become real good friends. Uh, my accent had mellowed a little bit as I kept getting stick for all the boys when I went back to the international setup. So basically, uh, that was it. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and now it's get my head down, work hard and see where it takes me. You mentioned towards the end, Coventry didn't have a lot of money. That wasn't the issue. I mean, you, you go to Blackburn during the, the Jack Walker era, an incredible era for the football club. Kenny Dalglish is a manager. When you start, you, you originally do play with Alan Shearer before he then moves on. The expectation, of course, was that you were going to come into the team and be a mainstay to replace him. And then you have those horror injuries and, and the worst season to get them as the club win the Premier League. Just sum up the era of the first few years when you come in, you're scoring goals. I mean, you, you, you were on fire when, when you just joined the club. Um, and then, as I say, Alan leaves. That's your time to be one of the real mainstays in the team. And then the injuries happen. Oh, it's, it's really weird because, I, I mean, I've always got a hindsight in the way that things went at Blackburn. And anybody over a certain price uh, at Blackburn Rovers got a bad injury. <laughs> and it, it happened to a lot, a lot of players. Alan got it. I got it, you know, Batty got it, you know, I mean, all these guys at Paul Warhurst got it, you know, Chris Cohen, all the guys I can run through at Blackburn at the time. Big money signings, top quality players, great talent, and they all had a bad injury. And it was really weird how it all accomplished that way. But for me, you know, when, when Kenny approached me with the move, um, I couldn't say no, really. Uh, my biggest thing was Blackburn were a team that came from... Uh, the league below and they were coming up it's going to be the first season but they were all over the papers they were making noises all over the place they'd spent 3.3 million on a young Alan Shearer from Southampton they were making noises in the league with the results they were getting and you kind of think wow so when Kenny came to me and we had the chat and eventually I agreed to sign I had to go home and look at the atlas a road atlas now. You might not know what a road atlas is because you're so young, but a road atlas is, is a map now. It's a GPS thing. And we had to open it up and find out where Blackburn was. And the only Blackburn I could find at the time that was up really north was near Edinburgh. And I thought, but we play in the English League. And I thought, it can't be there. And it must be near Liverpool then, where Kenny is. And then that's when we found it, Blackburn, northwest of Manchester. And that was it, really. It was... We came in, I knew then Colin Hendry had gone for Dundee. Um, so I'd known Colin from the reserve football. And I thought David Speedy had been there and left. And I'm thinking, well, there's a lot of Scottish guys had been here. And then I thought, wow, this, this, is, this could be a good club. It's going to go places because Jack Walker, the owner, and Kenny have a dream. And they're going to try and make this dream come true. And the money they were spending... They wanted me in because Alan had got injured and they started to drop down the table a little bit. And coming in, I played with Mike Newell up front and Newley was magnificent. Unbelievable footballer with you. And the two of us had it off right away. Uh, I scored on my debut against Liverpool. We beat them 4-1. And we never looked back that season. And I thought, wow, he's a good player, him. What is Alan Shearer like to play with then? Because when Alan comes back, Who's going to get the bump? Is it me or is it going to be Mike? Unfortunately for Mike, it was him. And I played with Alan. And again, we were starting to hit it off. And we went really well. And then it got to that stage in the season. 
that unfortunately we played Arsenal at Highbury and I turned to volley a shot. Steve Ball put his knee up. My leg went across his knee and snapped. And that was it. I thought, oh no, something's up because I couldn't move. My body was in shock. I knew there was something pain there, but eventually we, Arsenal people were brilliant. Uh, they got me into the home dressing room, x-rayed the leg right away and seen it was a spiral fracture and hospital bound I was off. And to see the rest of that season through Blackburn, um, we finished second. And I thought, wow, this is brilliant. And then they go and buy Chris Sutton for £5 million. And my stomach sank because I thought, oh, I won't be long till I'm back. And I've gone and bought Chris Sutton. I'm never going to be playing now. And now it's up to me again. How strong mentally was I going to be? What was my character like? It was getting tested all the time. And, you know, I went out and just was out. went to the hospital with my legs sorted. And I came out. Within a week, I was back in the gym trying to get myself fit. Stupidly, instead of having time off and getting my head right, I didn't. I was back in the gym, grafting my socks off, looking after my leg, getting myself fit, keeping myself in tip-top shape. As the guys were going on and performing in the Premier League, and now Blackburn were hitting the dizzy heights and people were worried about us. Here and Sutton were making the headlines. It was It's like a movie. And I'm thinking, I, can't, I want to be part of this movie. I want to be in there. I want, I want the SAS to stop. I want it to be GS. I want gas to take over. I want the gas to blow them out now. And, and that, that was my now. I had a carrot to get in there and, and play either in with the team some part along with Sheeran and Sutton. And fought back after about, I don't know, 10 months, I think it was. And I got the debut again like a new player coming back in the team. And we played Crystal Palace and Jason Wilcox got an injury and Kenny says, look, I think you're ready now. We've watched you in the reserves closely. Can you come in and play in the left wing for us against Crystal Palace? And this is your role. And I was like, I wasn't going to tell him no. So I played and I got on the score sheet. But unfortunately, later in the game, uh, the fullback, I done a step over and pulled away for the fullback, and he caught me very late, but it was right on the spot. And I know everybody says that I broke my leg twice, but I couldn't really break it because I had the pin in it. And all it did was it juddered the old break. And inside, which we couldn't, we didn't know about, there was a hairline fracture inside. So I'd actually been playing in reserve matches with hairline fracture that wasn't causing a problem. There was no pain, no nothing. And it was back to hospital again. And again, it was just put a boot on, same as, uh, but your rest of the season you're finished with, it's prepare yourself for next season. And that's what I did. So that was me. It was not one broken leg and getting back and have a happy time, but I had to get through two. So getting through the second one, I ended up with a ruptured hamstring. And again, it was like, oh my goodness, is anything going to go right for me? And I thought, well... I get my hamstring right, get everything sorted. And then, unfortunately, Alan Shearer decides time to move on, time to go to pastures new. Looked like Man United was going to be his destination, but Newcastle were the ones that he favoured and he left. And I got myself fit, and then that responsibility now came on 
Chris Sutton and Kevin Gallagher's shoulders to now produce it. So now I was under big pressure to produce or try and produce what, what Alan did. I'd done half of it because I probably got my best goal-scoring season ever at a high level with Chris Sutton. I think they scored, I don't know, 50 goals between them. Sutton and I got 40-odd between us. So realistically, like we were doing as well as we could. We got them into Europe and I thought, wow, I'm on my road back. And it was a good feeling. But the best feeling I ever had was when the surgeon turned round and I think I got back in the internationals. I think it was after a 98 World Cup and he turned round and said to me, you know what, Kevin, watching your career from when you broke it to now, he says, you should never have played football again. He says, it's the proudest moment ever. And he shed a little tear. And I thought, wow. And that came from the surgeon who basically put my leg back together again in the strongest possible way. And, I, and that, I just, I think, wow, people in the world do that for you. And I just thought it was fantastic. Absolutely. And, and you talk about that era of Blackburn, you talk about Sutton, you talk about yourself, you talk about um, Shearer, um, you look at other members of that team, Lasseau, Henry, Sherwood, I mean, the list goes on. The two I want to ask you about in particular um, are Wilcox and Ripley, because when for someone like me watching Premier League years, watching the archives, those, those two at Blackburn were just absolute whippets and flying machines when it came to, to crosses and assists. What was it like to play with them when you were up top? Were they, were they the sort of perfect foils for, for you and Chris or you and Alan, whoever it may be, as strikers? Oh, they were brilliant. There's no doubt about it. They, they knew when to put the ball into uh, the timing, you know, and it was just a case of get the ball in the box and we'll get there. That was the philosophy with Kenny. You need to get the ball in the box, the strikers will get there. You don't put a ball in the box, they're not going to go. And it's as simple as that. And we just make the runs, they'll put the balls in. And that's what they were good at. You know, I noticed it right away when on my debut against Liverpool, you know, you get the ball wide, you shoot Ripley, six foot, I don't know, six foot two, strong as an ox, big lad, powerful runner, fast as lightning. And he just knock it and run past you. Nothing fancy. Get it past you, whip it in the box, and basically say, "Go and fill your boots." Jason Wilcox, different winger, wiry, fast, could cut inside, cross with his right foot, could go down. That's a left foot, great left foot, and he worked hard. And you know, Stuart came to the club for I don't know a million pound uh, from Middlesbrough. Uh, that's why they paid a million pound for him because he was top quality. Jason was homegrown. And people forget that. And the fans gave Jason stick because he was homegrown. Oh, you're not good enough. And Jason was brilliant. You know, Jason was a big hallmark of, of that era of winning the league as a, a young player and, and getting better and better and maturing in the side of players that were basically new players walking in the door every single day. You are meeting a new player. And for a young player like Jason at that time to, to be looking, thinking, who's coming in to replace me next? Who's coming in to replace me next? There was nobody ever came in and done it, you know, and it's, it was just one of them. And, and then we went, as I said, the same time as me, his signing was Graham Lasseau. And what a signing that proved to be. £500,000 for Chelsea at the time. And you get a man and inevitable, you could see right away, one day he's going to be England's left back. He was a great player. But the unfortunate thing is Graham was from Jersey and he wanted to live the London life. And, and that was the difference. And, a fantastic fella, great footballer, you know, but he, he wanted to base himself 
in London, and and that was he made that clear. The unfortunate thing was when you're doing well in big clubs like Chelsea, then come back for you again. It was inevitable that Graham would have moved because soon as you see Alan moving to Newcastle, other people would then believe, oh wait a minute, then I can move then because it's we're not as big as we thought we were, and and that's what happened. And you got these guys top top players, you know. Kenny seen things in, like Colin Henry, for example, brought him back from Man City, told him to stop trying to score 20 goals a season from centre-half. Just stop team scoring. And that's what Colin did. Colin worked hard defensively, became one of the best centre-halves in the English Premier League of the era. And you think, wow. And you think, that's what happened at the football club. And Kenny, Ray Harford, the staff, he's a Hartford, Tony Parks, they all put things in together to make the football club stronger and put these pieces of the jigsaw together and Kenny seen that and, and, and that's what happened we were pieces of a jigsaw that fitted and when you had people like Wilcox and Ripley running up and down the tram lines and getting crosses in, it makes it so much easier for us as strikers to just get your timing right in the box and that's all we had to do, we'd make the timing right and scored the goals and the timing basically was myself, Mike Newell, Chris Sutton, we'd make near post runs, take the defenders away. Shearer would be back post, penalty spot. And he scored pff, amounts of goals that are unbelievable. He's still Premier League's all-time goal scorer because that's what he did. He knew where to run. His timing was bob on and we had people that could do that for him. In terms of Blackburn as a whole, it's it's a very interesting period when you look at the piece because you play under Kenny, they have the second place finish, winning the title, then with yourself and Chris Sutton getting into Europe, really looking as if the club are going to be on the up, maintaining that level. Then obviously with the players moving on gradually, form dips, the club ultimately gets relegated and, and, and you move on to, to Newcastle United. How do you reflect back in Blackburn over the piece? Because it's a unique element of football and history there where you had the extreme highs of winning the Premier League title, the second place finish, playing really good football, scoring goals to the to the low and of relegation ultimately in the end. Yeah, it was, it was really weird. It was a great period of time, you know, that we had. It was just a shame, I think, the five-year period that Jack and, and Kenny had set happened two years earlier. Uh, I think Ray Harford was wanted by other clubs to become a manager. I think Kenny then, to keep Ray, decided to try and convince Jack he'd be better upstairs, away from it, and tried it. And unfortunately, it didn't quite work out that way. Um, things started to crumble a little bit. There was, It was like Somebody put the wallpaper up but forgot to actually stick the proper amount of paste on it. And it was starting to peel at the sides and start roll down the wall. And unfortunately, Ray couldn't pull that together. There was players mentioned that we tried to get in. It wasn't happening. Players around the world, top quality players, they just weren't coming for some reason or another. And it just wasn't happening on the pitch for us. Uh, I think we were still celebrating that we were champions. Teams were just punching us down all the time and we just couldn't pick ourselves back up and we started to struggle. And unfortunately, Ray Harford gets a sack and it's, it's a big change at the football club and 
Roy Hodgson comes in. And Roy picked us back up again. And as I said, uh, we get back into Europe and it looks like we're back on track. And then the second season under Roy, he changed his tactics. He's changed his philosophy. He tried to change the personnel very quickly. And other personnel just didn't agree with it and it fell by the wayside. And that wallpaper crack came hurtling down the wall rapidly that none of us could stop it. Some of us were playing with injuries, trying to help the team out to get it better. And it just wasn't happening. And unfortunately, Roy then lost his job and Brian Kidd comes in. And Brian was deemed to be the saviour. and He couldn't do it. He took us down. And it's through Brian that I basically left Blackburn. He's a good coach, good philosophy, but he just wasn't a Blackburn manager. And the disagreements that I had personally with him, I didn't see eye to eye. And fortunately for me, Blackburn, or not Blackburn, Newcastle came in under Sir Bobby Robson and, and took me up there into the back into the Premier League and, and not the first division. And it was a heart it was a heart wrench, I must admit, when you've been seven years at a football club and you still think, well, I'm happy to stay in the, the championship and get Blackburn back out of it. But I went from first choice striker to fifth choice striker. And I thought, nah, it's not happening. But when Newcastle came, Sir Bobby Robson, I could not do anything else but jump at the opportunity. Such a massive club. Uh, having played up there and the atmosphere with the fans at the time, I just thought, wow, uh, they're in the Premier League, so I could stay in the top league. I'm still going to play in the top league. And I never had any second thoughts about it. It was just the fact is that Newcastle were down just above relegation. And I thought, oh, here we go. It's a relegation battle thing. And it wasn't. So Bobby Robson asked me to do a job. He asked me to go in and work the way I worked at Blackburn, be the way I was, help Alan out, help all the lads out there and see what could happen. And I went in and worked my socks off. And there was so much talent in Newcastle. Silvio Marichis, unbelievable football player. But to knock him off his perch and get my position proved to people how good a player I actually was. And I didn't do exactly what I'd have liked to do. I would score more goals at Newcastle. But I just worked as hard as I could to get that. I scored goals, but it wasn't to the ratio or to the amount that I would like. But I did play more as a wider player. And people forget when you're a striker, you always score more goals than what you are as, as a wider player. And people will always remember me at Newcastle being a little hard-working wide player. Uh, they'll never actually see the best of what Kevin Gallagher had done through the middle with Alan Shearer. And that was probably the only disappointing thing in the two years I had there. But I'd done the job. I'd done a job that I was asked to by Sir Bobby. I'd done my two years that I was asked to do. Uh, I was hoping for a third year. It didn't come along. And, and basically, from that moment on, things then started differentiating in, in my football career, dropping down the leagues and not enjoying football as much as I had done in the previous X amount of years. And when you're coming towards the end of your career, Kevin, as you say, dropping down the divisions, you're losing a wee bit of, of the enjoyment of it. You, you look back at your career, I imagine, at that point and think of everything that you've achieved and, 
And is that the point where you make your mind up and say, right, it's, it's time for me to, to move away from playing and maybe look towards the media or coaching? No, it never happened that way. It was really weird. Uh, I spoke to Andy Townsend and when Andy retired and I said to him, what, what made you retire? He says, Kevin, I said, I had a bad injury and I was trying to get back for the injury and the young boys were running past me all the time. He says, and I just went to training one day and I couldn't be bothered. I knew that was it. So I just went in and cancelled the contract and I had retired. And I thought, right, that was weird. This is, that's, can't believe that. And I thought, well, I've still got a few years left. I think I can go to 38, 34. So I've got four good years left in me. Here we go. Uh, I, I left Newcastle without a club, without anything at all. No sniffs. Agent was getting not a lot, anything on the, on the doorstep. And I'm thinking, I've just been playing in the Premier League and now I can't get anything. And I thought, right. And I spoke to Colin Hendry, who was at Bolton at the time. And I says, how's it going, big man? He says, oh, it's good, good, good. He says, look, is there any chance you could speak to someone, big Sam or Paul Brown or whoever it is, about coming in and just get myself fit for pre-season at Bolton? And he says, I see, hold on here, Phil Brown's in the dressing room now, speak with Phil. I spoke to Phil and I asked Phil, look, what's the chances of coming in and just training and see what happens? And he went, yeah. So I uh, drove over to Bolton's ground and went in the dressing room. I was a dressing room full of international footballers on trial. I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, about 12 international footballers on trial. I thought, I've never been on trial in my life. But now I'm on a trial. I thought, right, I don't know what to do. What am I going to do? So I just train every day the best I can, get all my pre-season training. I don't know how they're going to look at me and just get on with it. And myself and Billy McKinley outlasted everybody. They took us away pre-season with them in Spain. And we came back. And I thought, I've been away a month. I've not been paid for a month. I've not had any, uh, what shall I say, expenses, coverage for petrol money or nothing. Just a purely month I've paid out my own pocket to train my Bolton. So I decided to to get the agent, phone the agent, who at that stage wasn't really bothered about anything, and spoke to Big Sam. So I went and had a meeting with Big Sam, and David Moyes had been on the phone. and thought, yeah, I'll get Kevin to Preston. I'd like him to come to Preston, a big friend. I spoke to Big Sam, I said, well, what is the chance? He said, well, Kevin, if you stay till Christmas, we might be able to sort a contract out then. I went, no, I'm not daft, Sam. I've just come for the Premier League and they'd just been promoted. I ain't playing for nothing. I'm not stupid. I said, I'm not playing for nothing. I said, I'm sorry. I'll see you later. Thanks for keeping me fit, etc. And I phoned David Moyes up and says, look, I'll come and chat to you. I says, have a quick chat and see what happens. I'm on my way now. I'm coming for Bolton and I'll be half an hour. I went and spoke to David Moyes and he offered me five grand a week, which was a massive, massive drop in my wage. And I thought, yeah, I'll just play for it because I just wanted to play football. So I, I went to Bolton. I went to Preston, sorry. And that was me. I basically signed at Preston um, on a rolling contract, on a month-to-month rolling contract uh, under Moyes. He gave me the impression that I was going to be playing. And I went along. And it didn't start. The season started, pre-season games were there. But he started with Jonathan Mackin and David Healy. That's who he wanted as his front two. 
and myself and Richard Creswell were going to be backups and I didn't want that at my age. I wanted to still be playing in the Premier League. I believed I still had the ability to play in the Premier or to play in the Championship level uh, with Premier League quality. Uh, but Moisey just wanted me there as to help him understand Premier League players, how you treat them, and also to help his young players, how I could help his young players in the way that I play. Uh, I think if Moise had asked me to go into the coach and set up with him there and then, I'd have probably done it, and he'd have probably saved himself a fortune. I'd have probably retired, just gone in, he'd have done the coaching, if I'd have known that I was going to be sitting at Preston for a, nearly a full year, uh, not playing games, coming off the bench as sub. But I got to the Christmas period and I thought, right, it might be time now just to to call it a call the, the shots and say, no, that's me, I'm going to chuck it. But I know I still believed I, I wanted in the side. But by that stage, Moise then had asked me to, to do a little bit of coaching with the strikers and go in and do some coaching. So that's what I did. I, I took some striking sessions. We went in, done some finishing sessions with the strikers building the confidence up of the young boys, doing a little bit better movements and keeping them going. And then, unfortunately, I lost my mother. And when I lost my mum, I kind of lost something inside me. And I picked up a, an injury. And when I picked up the injury, it was quite hard to come back from. It was a calf injury. It wasn't healing. And I ended up just going down to... Harley Street and seeing a guy and paying him out my own pocket to have a look at my calf and, and see what I needed to see if I could get it sorted. And I went back to Blackburn and spoke to the surgeon who fixed my leg and get advice. And basically, uh, I didn't get the operation. I just got advice and I went away and got worked on that. And unfortunately, David Moyes got a, a move to Everton. And I thought, oh, well... Well, I wonder what's going to happen here. Uh, will his assistant go with him? Or will his assistant stay and maybe ask for help and I can help him? His assistant, Kelly Mahanlon, didn't. He phoned me up out of the blue and just said, the chairman, he's not going to renew your contract at the end of the month. And I went, kind of weird. I've only got a month left to the end of the season. Well, a month and a half. We have two weeks left of this contract. So that's kind of strange. I thought, okay, no problem, just hung up on him. And I never went back. I picked the phone up and I phoned up Terry Orris at Sheffield Wednesday. And I phoned up a couple of people, well, a couple of people. And Terry Orris at Sheffield Wednesday invited me over for the last month of the season. And I just went over again. Can we help them get a little bit of uh, out of the kind of relegation zone because it's close to relegation, last five or six games of the season. So, again, it wasn't to be used as a player. It was just getting used as your knowledge and help people along with the game. And i done that, got over that job. And again, it was the end of the season. And I thought, here we go again. So I phoned Terry, said, what's the chances, Kevin? I don't even know if I'm going to be in a job. I'm sorry at the minute. So at the minute, it has to be a no. So I went, right, OK. But again, I had to find a club to train at. And I thought, what am I going to do? And I befriended Chicho Grabi at Blackburn Rovers. A friend of mine was an Italian lad and spoke to Chicho. Got to know Chicho, his agent, and I said, look, pre-season training. I says, I'm going over to Italy for a holiday with the family, but 
I don't want I want the holiday combined, but is there anywhere that you can have a look and see if any football clubs will take me on a training basis and I can train professionally? And I got a club and I went over uh, to the mainland in Italy and it was Palermo who had a mixed under-21s kind of reserve side. We're on an hour away from where, I, where we were based on holiday. And they said it was okay for me to go and train. So I went up into the mountains and trained with them and learned a lot about the coaching side of the game and what Roy Hodgson done at Blackburn. Palermo coaches done the exact same. Uh, there was no difference in British coaching to Italian coaching. It was just the way they put things across, different aspects of it. The, I was up at seven swimming. After swimming, you'd have your breakfast and then you would go training. After training, you would go in the gym. And then after gym, you go away, you'd have your tea. And after tea, then you'd be back out doing another little bit of training again. And I thought, wow, it's like a whole long day of it, of training for pre-season. And I enjoyed it. It got me fit. Um, I needed matches now. So I'd done a, a week in the Italian mountains with Palermo. Learned a little bit more Italian to help. Uh, me get along because nobody spoke Italian and uh, we had a little Nigerian guy, John, who spoke Pigeon English, uh, who was the only one I could converse with, really, and thought, right, I'm ready to go back. And I thought, right, I'll send it out, how am I can speak to him. Mick Wadsworth had become manager at Huddersfield at the time and Mick had worked under uh, Newcastle United. And I thought, right, this is an opportunity. So I spoke to Mick and I says, look, Mick, I need pre-season matches. I need to be playing in matches. I need to get match fit. I said, I've been training, but I need match fitness. So I went over the Huddersfield reserves and trained and played a, a couple of reserve games with Huddersfield. Scored two or three goals. And he went, Kevin, he says, the chairman would love to have you here, but he's actually embarrassed to speak to you because he can't really offer you any money. And I said, well, look, I'm not getting any offers at the minute, Mick, and I just want to play football. I says, I'm happy playing in reserves. I says, but if your first team want me in, and I find that I can still play in that, that level in the second division at the time now, uh, then I'll do it. Uh, and he went, yeah. So I spoke to the chairman. I've got petrol money, really, for playing. And it was the start of the, the downfall. I was enjoying it. And getting on with it, it was weird because there was the team were they were going through a financial period that wasn't very good at the club, and so for me, I thought this isn't this isn't what I wanted to play football about. And now all the players were talking to me because I'm the older pro. They're asking all the questions, and I said, "Well, who's the PFA rep at the club, and what to get the, the PFA rep in?" And, to speak to them and get the PFA in and because some of the boys now weren't getting paid and I thought right I don't know about this and we're training and I went into training and we went to train at the training ground and on the road back I was driving the boys back it was my turn to drive and I parked in the car park and I said to the boys you go on I'll be in in a minute and I just sat in the car I must have sat in about two or three minutes the radio was off and I thought that's it. I've had enough. I'm out. 
and I walked in and I don't, I can't even remember. I think I went in and just said to the manager, thanks very much for all your help and I had a shower. I don't even think I said goodbye to the boys, I can't remember and just walked out and left. That was my retirement for football. People think I retired because I was injured. I wasn't. I was fully fit. Uh, I was super fit again. Uh, I just fell out of love of football. It just came over in a cloud within an instance and I just had enough of it. And I walked out at 36, nearly 37 years of age, retired for football and started doing my coaching licences at Newcastle a few years earlier and just getting back into the practice with that again and getting practice up to date with the A licences and look for a job and getting no help from anybody regarding that. I thought, well, there was only one person and the guy was Neil Bailey, the PFA, was helping me, the only guy that would come out and stand out and help you. And that's been a disappointing factor from since retirement, which is now, I think I retired in 2002, so it's 18 years ago. And it's a sad, sad day that nobody looks after the, the players when they finish. And I'm sure there's an avenue out there now for, for people which are starting to do it now and look after the players when they finish. And I just hope the agents now look after the players when they're finished as well because they just get dumped in a scrap heap and fend for, fend for yourself. And a lot of us have been there and you're trying to build up careers, whether it's your own business or whether it's your own football, soccer schools. You have to do it yourself, but you don't get any help from anybody. And that's the downside. It's been a fascinating chat, Kevin. Um, and as you've said there, I hope that more is done for those within the game who retire, whether that be in their 30s, whether that be in their 20s or whatever it may be through injury, because it's something that, that really needs to be done. And in terms of yourself and the academy, it's, it's going well, which is great to hear. Um, you've built that up, as you mentioned, from yourself, which is which is even more admirable. And I wish you all the very best for the future. And I just can't thank you enough for joining me today because it's been a real insight into to life as a footballer and, and life after football as well. No, you're welcome, you know. And as I said, it's just it's just a shame I couldn't get any more stories in there, but you could talk all day, as I said. But no, it's been a pleasure just letting you know about my career and what, what I'm up to now and how we're going. You know, fortunately for me, I still work within the game because I still do all my, my radio and all my television stuff, which is on hold at the minute, obviously, with um, the cool commentary stuff. But uh, that stuff has is, been fantastic for me going in that side of the game. Uh, and also the, my friend who's a, a scout, a football scout, who has a business in that as well. So for me, being in that part of the game as well, I've been around the world, I've been to China for the last... I don't know, five years with that, to Norway, to Malmo, Sweden, everywhere going about teaching uh, people, getting into football clubs and helping people build a template for scouting. And unfortunately, with everything that's happened in the last six months now, that, again, has been put on the, the back burner. So uh, being involved in football, it's a great thing, but sometimes it's uh, when you come up with a... A dilemma that we have now is quite a hindrance. Absolutely. There's just so much going on and hopefully things can get back to normal as soon as possible. But but as I say, thanks again for your time and, and I wish you all the best with the academy because, as I said in the intro, I think it's important that those who have played the game at the elite level can speak to kids, whether they're at academies or whether they've been let go by academies because I think that's the best way to learn. Yeah, and it's, it's for me, it's getting out there to the children 
listen to the pros. Don't believe do you know it all. Guys that have made it at the very highest level, they need to listen to. And I know a lot of kids don't. They just go, all right, you're, you, you've played before. No, I know everything. And unfortunately, they don't. Just if they listen and take something out the toolbox of that professional player and they go on and use it, that's, that's as good as what you're going to get. You have to use that professional's toolbox because it will help you become a better footballer. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open